In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Sometimes I worry about this parable, and preaching and teaching this parable in church, because I think there's a great spiritual danger when we read the parable of the Pharisee and a tax collector. I think our sinful nature is going to fight against what Jesus is saying here to us. What we are going to try to do is to make this parable into a work in which we must do the certain thing to be saved. And here's what I mean. We will read this parable and we know right away that the Pharisee is the bad guy and the tax collector is the good guy. That's Jesus' point as we see it. One will be humbled and the other will be exalted. So we read this and think, well, we want to be exalted. That's the reward. And so we begin to create a rule for ourselves or a law for ourselves. We think, well, we have to get more humble. We think, oh, we better sit in the back pew and keep our eyes down and just pray for God's mercy. In other words, we think we want to get on Jesus' good side. And so, well, we must act like the tax collector. And that's dangerous. It's dangerous because it turns us into a Pharisee. And I know that's confusing, but if we turn this parable into a law about what we have to do to earn God's grace, then we just become like a Pharisee. Jesus' point is not that you can earn God's grace by working to become more humble. He's not saying that turning your eyes away from heaven and beating your breast is your ticket to heaven. And if we think that we just need to act like the tax collector to be a true Christian, then we set ourselves up to be just another Pharisee. We give ourselves another thing to do in order to earn God's grace. Now, of course, the Pharisee is the negative example in the parable. His heart is what Jesus is holding up as that negative example because he's the one who's trusting in himself. And that's clear in the parable. The Pharisee is putting his trust in all of his goodness and so here we need to clarify, because what the Pharisee does is not actually bad. In fact, as a pastor, I want a whole congregation that acts like this Pharisee, right? He gives 10% of his income to the church. He doesn't cheat anyone. He's faithful in his marriage. He does all the right things, all the things he's supposed to do, and that's great. We want everyone to be like this. But Jesus doesn't criticize the Pharisee because the Pharisee gives the church or because he's faithful in his marriage, or because he's generous. Jesus criticized the Pharisee in the parable because the Pharisee believes that these are the things that make him righteous before God. Although the Pharisee's heart clearly has problems, he doesn't love his neighbor as himself, he looks with contempt at others, and he believes he's free of sin. And he believes he's free of sin because, well, look how pious he is. And that's problematic. Martin Luther, in his most Martin Luther way, says that this kind of reasoning is the devil's prostitute. Luther argues that if we reason out that we can follow God's law on our own, then we begin to deceive ourselves. Like the Pharisee, if we say, God, I did this good work. I volunteered at church this time. I come to church most Sundays. I give to the offering. I read my Bible. I'm basically a good person. So I'm doing okay. I'm not trashy like these other people. I don't sin as much as that one guy I know. 
then we're falling prey to the devil. Because the devil wants to shift our attention from what God does for us to what we think we can do for ourselves. We come to believe that we are the way to salvation. And if we believe that we are the way to salvation, then we turn away from Christ. Because our true confession is that Christ is the one who saves us. And so the view that we must save ourselves is a view that leads to nothing but self-doubt and dread. Because deep down, we'll always carry that burden of trying to save ourselves. Did I do enough to earn my salvation? Am I good enough? Am I generous enough? And Jesus' point is not that the tax collector shows us a certain way to behave. He's not telling us to go exploit people for gain. He's not telling us to become a sinner for the sake of becoming a sinner. He's telling us that our justification, our salvation, comes only through what God does for us in Jesus Christ. This is what the tax collector shows us and that the Pharisee misses. The Pharisee believes that his only hope in life is being the best version of himself. The Pharisee believes that as long as he tries hard, then he'll be saved. The tax collector, however, knows his only hope is God's mercy. He knows he is bound and captive to sin and that he cannot free himself. And all he can do is cry out to God. The tax collector knows that he is like a swimmer drowning in the ocean. He doesn't need God to stand on the beach and instruct him on how to swim back to the shore because he knows he'll be drowned before that will ever work. He knows he's all but dead in the water. And so the tax collector knows he needs God to come out to the water and rescue him. And that's what the tax collector does. He puts all of his trust in the Lord to save him. The spiritual danger of this parable comes when we turn the tax collector's example into a law for ourselves. When we think, oh, if I just pray like this, then I'll be saved. If I just act more humbly, then surely God will be kinder to me. But then the focus turns entirely back on what we're doing rather than what God does for us. That's spiritually dangerous. When you make your faith about what you do, and you begin to tread a treacherous path. As the Pharisee shows us, you will never do enough. You can do all the good works in the world, but it will not change your heart. You cannot change your sinful heart. There's no piety, there's no practice that's going to cure you of your sin problem because your sin problem is deeply ingrained into your heart. And that's what the tax collector gets. He knows he cannot fix himself. He can only put his trust into God to save him. That's the true faith. Next Sunday, of course, we'll celebrate Reformation Sunday. And at the heart of the Reformation was this teaching. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved only by what God does for us. We don't contribute to our salvation. It's all God. It's all what God has done for us through his son. It's all because of what Jesus Christ has done. He has lived perfectly for us. He has become the perfect atonement for all of our sins. And now God gives us all that Christ has. We don't do anything. We receive it all as gift. In our parable, Jesus doesn't tell us that the tax collector leaves the temple 
and becomes a holy person. Remember in Jesus' day, tax collectors were not good people. They were more like mafia members. They were more like organized crime. They would collect taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire, and then they would add a certain percentage to put into their own pockets. They were cheaters. But here Jesus doesn't say that the tax collector leaves and fixes his life and repays everyone that he has cheated. Maybe he did, but he doesn't say that. Nor does he say that the tax collector begins to give to the church. Maybe he begins to tithe to the temple. Maybe, but Jesus doesn't say that either. Jesus says the tax collector trusted in the mercy of God and he left justified. He left as one who has been declared righteous because of what God has done for him. And so knowing that our salvation is completely 100% the work of God, we become free to love our neighbor and not to look at others with contempt. That's the behavior and the attitude Christ is addressing in the parable. The Pharisees look at others with contempt. For them, the only people that should be included into God's people are the ones who act in a certain way that they consider religious and righteous. They don't love their neighbors because they don't see that they have the same spiritual needs as their neighbors. The Pharisees believe that they are better because they act better. They follow the law better. But at the heart of Jesus' parable is the truth that we're all sinners. We all need God's mercy. You're not better because you go to church. You're not better because you give generously. You're not better because you have a stable job, a nice family, because you're well-educated, because you do all of the right things to be a good citizen. You're as much of a sinner as anyone, and you cannot save yourself. You are completely dependent on God. But that truth will free you to love your neighbor. Because it's a realization that together we're all in the same predicament. We're all sinners who need Christ. And understanding this allows me to see my neighbor with love. Wanting good for them, not so that they change their behavior to act like me, but so that they can have the joy of having salvation in Christ. I want my neighbor, too, to have the freedom of forgiveness. And this comes from a heart that cries out to the Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And a heart that turns everything over to God is a heart that is free. It no longer needs to keep a checklist of all the good things it does. It's a heart that doesn't have to worry about impressing others it's a heart that doesn't carry the burden of trying to change the world so that everyone else will become good. It's simply a heart that can rest, rest in the knowledge that God does it all for us. We can live in such a way that we enjoy our forgiveness. And this ought to give us comfort and assurance. And for Lutherans, this is so central to what we believe and confess as Lutherans, we make so center to our practice baptism and Holy Communion because these are concrete assurances that God has forgiven us, that we don't do anything to earn this forgiveness. But it's all God. It's all God forgiving us. He gives us baptism and he gives us communion so that we might have the comfort of knowing he, in fact, has forgiven us. Christ has accomplished salvation for us. 
And Christ promises to have mercy on us. Us, the worst of all sinners, Christ promises to have mercy on us. Amen.